have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. And welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the spice to my space worm. Your spice, you say? You are the spice, I am the worm. That sucks. That genuinely sucks. That's... We are one and the same. The no. worm is the spice. The spice is the worm. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that the worm is attracted to the spice and devours things that are, include the spice. So uh, clearly the, the sentient entity, the great grandfather, if you will, that is going after the spice and devouring it whole. Khalil, what, what, what do you want done with the unplugged professor here? Also, my bile grants wisdom. Your bile grants wisdom. Yes. How 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 how's that going for you? I don't know. It's not it's not causing Do, me wisdom. It gives other people wisdom. You have to ask the last person who had my bile. But you constantly have your bile. I I, I see no sense in so the. So this is worm like in Dune, the most intelligent thing. Like, does it just know all so, by constantly being the bile? So this is a good time as any to bring up the fact that hey, who guys, are you? Who are you? <laughs> I mentioned myself on the Unplugged Professor. Oh, I didn't. Uh, maybe you did. <laughs> so we're talking about so Dune. We're going to be talking about Dune. And for the question that you brought up and going forward with any of this, hey, guys, how's it going? How's, how are you? How are you? How How is the person adjacent or pet or bookshelf adjacent to you? How, how are you guys? Just to let you know, we are going to have some spoilers for not only Dune from David Lynch. 1984. From David Lynch. Not only will we have a little bit of spoilage from, well, the book, because it was a book at and one point. And the professor's read the book. I have read the book a time ago, but still enough still read to, it. Still enough to keep a good memory with, still enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And actually, since, hey, tis the season, we also have Dune in theaters 2021, which we'll likely be talking about as well. There's going to be a lot of Dune talk in this Dune podcast. So if you're hoping to check out Dune or Dune or, or Dune, Dune, well, two out of three of those Dunes can be featured currently on HBO Max, depending on when you're listening to this. The movies themselves or just people that just want to cancel their subscriptions just uh, because it's no longer time. Probably the movies. I, th I think HBO Max at this point has sunk their teeth into people. They've, they've got me hooked, so we'll oh. see. What happens? Oh, no, oh, no Khalil. Uh, and, and, I, and I do want to offer a, a slight uh, correction here, Professor. And uh, We are definitely going to talk about the new Dune. No maybes, no buts, but definitely sandworms. I might give up halfway through the podcast, Khalil. I don't want to promise things that I don't know will happen but, or not. But we will not spoil directly the new 2021 Denis Villeneuve version until the end, and we'll give you a little warning before we do that. Oh, excellent. I, I, I hope I'm being warned because... Uh, I, I'm still I'm still recovering a little bit from the movie, and 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 I don't know for sure how much we'll get into it, but just uh, forewarning, we also may spoil anything from Twin Peaks seasons one and two, Fire Walk with Me, or any David Lynch film before Dune, including some of the short films and some of the short films afterward, just the short films in general, uh, and and the season three of Avatar. But not the season three of Twin Peaks known as The Return. We're still on our way toward mm -hmm. that. And, mm -hmm. and one of the reasons I wanted to do all these David Lynch films, aside from the fact that I just really like them and want to show the professor them, is because I think 
to get a good grasp on the return for a first-time viewer like the professor, it'll be good to get an idea of what Lynch is like. And Dune <laughs> occupies a very strange space in Lynch's filmography. Would you call it wonderful? I would call it, no, I would just call it strange. I mean, <laughs> it's wonderful in the sense that it definitely has a cult classic reputation for a lot of people. Really? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's got a cult following. However, like, commercially and critically at the time, like, super bomb. I will super s- not good. I will say one thing. Uh, when I did go to the movie theater to see Dune 2021, there was a man who helped me out with concessions because I was completely lost inside of it. And if we actually ended up talking as soon as I walked out of that trap of a maze. But the biggest question on his mind was whether or not it was faithful to the David Lynch Which, film. that's really interesting. We'll, that, well, we'll answer whether or not it was when we get to the new one, but <laughs> that is a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, instead of, like, obviously with the book, but it, it, it's it's pretty strange, I would say. Not is sure it wonderful? About the wonderful. Oh, I'm no. not sure if it's a wonderful. Um, just to even kind of see that sort of momentum from a person. Now, again, this was a singular person, right. but then again, you also said that there's a cult following. How many people might want to sure. see something faithful redone with this film. And speaking of theaters and theatrical experiences, I have a correction for our Racerhead podcast from last time. Oh, corrections. You mean like the theater was supposed to be cut out? It's supposed to be gone. No. Yes. But yes, someone I thought would be gone, but came back was an actor. I said erroneously (laughs) last time that no actor, as far as I knew, uh, in the Elephant Man, would get recast in a David Lynch film because you'd asked me. You would turn to me as someone who supposedly knows things. I trusted you. And I failed you. I, I gave you. you full trust. Now, just like, speaking of trust, the actor was the one for Bites, the character we trusted most from the Elephant Man, uh, <laughs> Mr. Freddie Jones. Okay. He was recast in, of all things, Dune. So I immediately was like, oh, someone was recast so in the very next movie. Immediately wrong. Immediately wrong. Mm. Uh, and that would be Freddie Jones again as Thufer. The guy who trains the people, the Kyle McLaughlins. Yes. And apparently there's a little bit of a story behind that, that Lynch had to go against much resistance to get this guy cast because Dino De Laurentiis, the, you know, the guy who run the production studio for this, right? Yes. He did not want to have him there. He actually planned to fire Jones. I don't know exactly why, but he only managed to change his mind after Lynch pushed and pushed and pushed and then saw Jones's, experience on the dailies the first dailies like the first you know performances of it yes and went so far as to apologize to jones personally for being so skeptical and obviously keeping him in the film Mm. Uh, and then also not recast but almost recast uh sir john hurt was offered the part of dr ua oh so offered uh he just refused okay so, yeah, anyway, I was wrong right away. Is there Was there any specific reason for, like, declining Dr. Ewing? Or? Not that I found in my research. Speaking of my research, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, sources for this episode, IMDb, Wikipedia, The Dune Wiki, Mel Magazine, Screen Rant, and IndieWire. So there's a rather exhaustive amount of research one could feasibly do about the history of Dune, not only as a book, but as an attempt at film, Uh, because Lynch's version is obviously not the only time it's been done. We've seen one done more recently, but there are also attempts before Lynch to make that into a movie. So the... One of the earliest, at least, I could find was that Sir David Lean, uh, the director who made Lawrence of Arabia, had been offered to direct the film. Okay. And... Fittingly, Lawrence of Arabia from 1962 was actually an inspiration for the original Dune novel. So it kind of went full circle if we would have had the same director. But he turned it down. And said it's a half circle. 
It, it's practically a boat. Speaking of boats, Alejandro Jodorowsky, hope I said that right, had originally planned on filming Dune in the early 70s. Now, Jodorowsky, I haven't seen any of his films yet. He makes very, very strange, like, surrealist uh, nightmare films. I don't know if they're nightmare in the sense of Lynch's, like, creepiness, but they're they're wild. They're art pieces, right? Okay. And there's a whole documentary about it called Jodorowsky's Dune. It's a 2013 documentary. And apparently he set out to make a, quote, world-changing prophet of cinema, which would have brought together a lot of different talents. Uh, some of the ones that I thought were interesting, it would bring together Mobius and H.R. Giger to design an unprecedented visual style. And Salvador Dali would play the emperor and Orson Welles would play the baron. So Dali being the emperor, I think, tells you a lot about the ethos of what this movie would have been, <laughs> right? That's the world we're creating. And then, of course, there's, the, again, the full circle idea of Giger. We mentioned Giger with context of Eraserhead and the whole element in which Giger has been accused, supposedly, by Lynch of copying him in the first place. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with, with Giger and Lynch over the years, I think. The soundtrack to Jodorowsky's version would have been done by Pink Floyd as well adding to the more, again, open to interpretation dream element mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, instead, we actually got in the Lynch version, Toto, with Brian Eno also helping out in the soundtrack. So Lynch's version did have a, you know, rock group, just not mm -hmm. Pink Floyd specifically. I know all these bands. I know all their music. I know the songs. I know the sing songs. Now, you know you, that Pink Floyd Do you at least Floyd know Pink song? Floyd's, like, kind of music? Um, you know, they, they sing, like, the... Like, uh, like us and them, uh, time, money, none of those. Okay, so nope. Pink Pink Floyd is known like Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon. You've really seen like the album design, right? The um, the, tr the diamond pyramid, the pyramid and light refracting. Oh, I, I've seen that T-shirt. It's yes. a very popular T-shirt. Anyway, <laughs> Pink Floyd is kind of like that stoner rock sort of mentality. It's it's very much trying to go experimental. It's a lot of times very ephemeral and ethereal and words that I'm probably going to get yelled at for actual Pink Floyd fans listening to this. Yes. But, but they have a rather, I think, fitting sound if you're going to have Dolly Emperor World is all I'm getting at. Uh, more information about Jodorowsky's screenplay from what we can gather. Mm -hmm. uh, reportedly, it was as big as a phone book, the screenplay. It would, runtime would easily exceed 12 hours. Jodorowsky's Dune was going to be at least 12 hours. Uh, this, as well as his request for a budget of $15 million, and this at a time when $5 million was, like, normal, right? Yep. American Studios, for some reason, didn't want to make this experimental weird thing that would cost a bajillion dollars and be 12 hours long. Jodorowsky also planned on making numerous changes to the source material, and some fun ones here, by the way, would have been making Duke, Leto, and a eunuch from a bullfighting incident. Paul would be conceived with a drop of his blood, and the spice was also a sentient blue sponge. Although author Frank Herbert had met with Jodorowsky and described their contact as amicable, he openly despised these concepts. So when... I wish I could see sponge spice. So is it that the planet is covered in sponges? Is it like I, a singular we'll never know. sponge we'll, we'll have to watch in the which we just press into our foreheads and that is how we get the highs? Is it the fact that like we can <laughs> space travel via sponge? It's it's a... Who, who knows? We'll never know. We haven't seen it yet. Now... It's, it's sentient. So for the yes. blue sponge to be sentient uh, and also have that, how, like, is it something in which, like, it just actively does on a whim? Or is You're it something in which, questions. like, you have to, like, ask for consent first, like, talk to it, like, maybe take it out for a couple dates, you know, and just, like, really get to know it before saying, like, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to fly through space with you. 
blue sponge. Uh, sponge wants to go steady on the first few dates before taking anything more serious direction. Mm. So Jodorowsky also apparently was disappointed and jealous when he learned that David Lynch was making Dune, as supposedly he believed that Lynch was the only other director actually capable of doing the justice to the novel. So he was kind of jealous in the sense of like, dang, he chose the other guy who could probably do this thing. At first, Jodorowsky refused to see the movie, but his sons dragged him to go see it. As the movie unfolded, Jodorowsky says he became very happy, seeing that it was a failure. And failure is the quoted terminology here. Uh, this is mostly from the documentary, also I think cited on IMDb, I believe is where I found that part. Now, so that's Jodorowsky. Yes. We're two directors down. One, I don't know why the Lawrence of Arabia won, he just didn't want to do it. Jodorowsky got, for some reason, denied his 12-hour magnum opus Dully masterpiece. Sir Ridley Scott was the third one. But... <laughs> now... Before before we go on to Ridley Scott, I do want to make a note on Jodorowsky's sure. proposal, like 12-hour proposal. Yes. I think that it's... <laughs> I, I think it's a proper proposal, but not for the case that... Of a movie. Right. Like, like when we're considering like Dune, like the sheer size of Because there was a Dune series like in the late 90s, in the early 2000s. The, there's a series that was first handled by one person, then the son took over. Uh, but it, regardless, Dune is still a lengthy book. Right. It's got a lot of details. It like goes really... It has a lot of fun with all the characters and all the individuals that mm -hmm. impact each other's lives and then goes into the thought lengths. And I'm thinking to myself, like, imagine if someone tried to put Game of Thrones, for example, into a singular two-hour space. With all the characters and with all the things going on, right. one could consider it a bit of a mess. Right. So I, I, I kind of agree with the sentiment of something being 12 hours, but not necessarily a movie. I, I, I think that... I mean, some people consider David Lynch as the return an 18-part movie, an 18-hour like hour movie almost. I don't know how. I mean, you can't comment. You haven't seen it yet. But some people will definitely argue that is a movie in split into 18 parts. That's fine. If that somehow works for you, fantastic. Fantastic. I cannot stay conscious for that long. For you know, no offense. Couldn't stay conscious. The people who had chestbursters inside of them in Ridley Scott's movies, Alien. Oh, they're dead. They're dead. They don't stay conscious. So Ridley Scott, Sir Ridley Scott, was for a while going to be the director. And, as fate would have it, had brought on H.R. Giger as production designer, like how Jodorowsky had intended. And Giger had just recently worked with Ridley Scott on Aliens. This would have been after Alien, mm -hmm. before Aliens. Mm -hmm. And Ridley Scott left the production after his older brother passed away, very suddenly. Very unfortunate situation. Now, Scott wanted to start working as soon as possible, but Dune would have taken far too long to reach production. So he left the project in favor of a different science fiction adaptation from a beloved book. In this case, Blade Runner. So just as David Lynch turned down Star Wars and ended up doing Dune... And fate would have that co as it may. Uh, Ridley Scott did Blade Runner partly as a result of not being able to do Dune. And Blade Runner became what it is. And I love Blade Runner, so I'm happy about the circumstance. <laughs> um, and then also, again, because everything rhymes, it's all poetry. The sequel to Blade Runner, the movie that Ridley Scott directed, Ridley Scott, who almost directed Dune, mm -hmm. the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, was directed by Denis Villeneuve, who is the director of the new Dune. I feel like... It's all connected. There must be, like, some sort of secret meeting that we're not privy to. It's the to. spice. It's the, the spice. sentient blue sponge spice. They need to get together to get the spice. Which brings us to David Lynch. After numerous attempts to find a director, we have this guy who made a 
few experimental short films while the AFI who made Eraserhead by living in the studio for like five years and spending all of his money he got from work and having Catherine Coulson make them food all the time. Mm-hmm. And then he made The Elephant Man, a movie that did commercially pretty successful. It, Mel Brooks was involved and everyone was generally okay with it. Won a few awards, got nominated for a few awards, and he gets handed to him the opportunity for Dune. Mm-hmm. At this point, Dune had been in a nine-year struggle to just find a director. The rights were set to expire. Now, D. Laurentiis was able to renegotiate the rights from the author if they added to the rights the Dune sequels, both written and, at that time, unwritten sequels. So the plan would have been to continue making Dune films after this, uh, according to the agreement that they had portrayed. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before, and I'll say it again in case the listener's just jumping in, David Lynch at this around the same time had been offered to direct Return of the Jedi, the third Star Wars movie, which he declined. And the quote I have on that is that David Lynch said Star Wars was, quote, George Lucas's thing, not my thing. Now, Lynch agreed to direct Dune and write the screenplay, though he had not read the book. He did not know the story and in his own admission had never been interested in science fiction at all. Good signs, right? All good signs. All All good signs. All good signs lead to good. Now, the Star Wars thing becomes more relevant here because not only was Dune itself as a novel very influential on George Lucas and making Star Wars, you can see trace elements of Dune like in Star Wars, Mm -hmm. but the producers behind the 1984 David Lynch version thought that they were making with Dune a Star Wars for grownups. That is what I have read in my research. Star Wars for grownups. Star Wars for grownups. And whatever you interpret that to mean, I I, I find that phrasing very interesting. And weirdly enough, when I was doing research for this, I was seeing Villeneuve and cast members and news media using the same terminology now, calling this Star Wars for grownups. When I was just Googling the phrase Star Wars for grownups, it pops up doing things with the new Dune all over the place. And I I think there's an interesting debate to be had over what is Star Wars for grownups? Is Star Wars not for grownups already? Did one of them do more grown-up than the other? And I think that's a conversation we can't fully get into until we bring in Villeneuve's version. But let that linger in the background that their goal with David Lynch's was Star Wars for grown-ups, and let that be a metric in your mind. I mean, it seems to be one of those little encourage gatekeepy things. I, I think there's that this is for all ages, but this one, this is one's for the older audience. This is for the ones that will be able to get all of the sophistication if, and all the details going on. Not from what tiny, puny, primitive ape brain your children have. Put them back in their cages and let them swing their light sticks at each other. No, this, my block man this is my magnum opus (laughs) i I think to read it charitably you know star wars the original trilogy it is a series of family films essentially they are very simple archetypal stories they are very basic mentor training the young space samurai warrior to go do space battles against evil bad guy there's good and there's evil light and dark clear cut Um, Not to say there isn't nuance in Star Wars, but the original movies just on their own, children can get into them pretty easy. You show them 1984's Dune and you ask that child what they just saw, they're going to have some trouble comprehending it. Does that make it more grown up is debatable. But I think even just if I read their if I read their intentions charitably, they wanted to make a movie that had more complex plot lines, complex characters and complex ideas than Star Wars. Now, now that's how I'm interpreting what they wanted. 
Yeah. Whether they succeeded, whether even complex equals grown up, again, debate can happen. Debate can absolutely happen. I just personally despise the phrase for grown-ups. I, I think, again, there's like a sort of stance yeah. that you kind of hold above all others when you do say, no, this is specifically for blank. Like, for example, if we take something like Invincible, I call that adult animation. It's something that uh, is something that I might even hardly call it that. I think that it's something that recommend for more mature audiences. Mm -hmm. But regardless, it is uh, a piece of work that if I, I would also say it's not for kids, though, <laughs> I would for the violence. Like, I, I think that, yeah, it's not for kids, but I don't call it the superhero show for grownups. I, but at the same time, I think we both understand if someone called it that what they mean and why they mean it. You just don't like necessarily the connotation of that. Yes. I, I think that. There's a difference maybe between saying it's for grownups in the sense of a gatekeepy, you know, only sophisticated individuals can understand this. The whole Rick and Morty meme, right? Only <laughs> only the truly enlightened will understand this show. Whereas I do think in a certain extent, no, I don't think that Invincible or Rick and Morty or Do 1984 are made for children in mm -hmm. the sense that I would not recommend these for a child. Do and less because it's graphic, more because I just don't know what a child would think is happening. I don't know what a lot of people would think is happening. Yeah, that's, I don't know if it's made for humans. Is what I'm also <laughs> getting at. Anyway, 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 continuing here. David Lynch worked on this script for six months with Eric Bergen and Christopher DeVore. And the team yielded two drafts of the script before eventually they split over creative differences. And Lynch subsequently worked on five more additional drafts. So this movie has a history. <laughs> Some differences that uh, were noted here. The weirding module in the 1984 version was written into the movie to replace the Bene Gesserit martial art referred to by the Fremen as the weirding way. Lynch decided to use these modules because he thought that the idea of the weirding way was unworkable on film. And he did not want to see, quote, Kung Fu on Dunes. I love the idea that Lynch thought, no, they can't do like martial arts in space. However, if we give them cool space blaster gun weapons, we can fight practice droids with and they can turn into Gumby at, with like cubes around them. That's going to be good. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> some there, there's some positions in which I'm personally weirded out by. The weirding not, way has weirded us out. I'm pretty sure, like, the phrasing weirding way was also used in, like, in general, like, with the book itself. Well, weirding module was new. That's weirding the module. new part. Yes. Okay, so, like, He, he moved gun. the weirding module into there. They still mentioned the weirding way in the 84 version, but the weirding module is kind of a new thing. So where did they get all these weirding modules? I don't know. Where, where did they come from? We don't know. Like, is, <laughs> is it something that they just produce from, like, their torsos? Like, like if we see Kyle MacLachlan produce outwards his chest, suddenly, like, the modules will pop out so that people may use them? Well, I assume the modules thing on his hand, like, little blaster thing yeah, that but, he's shooting. Yeah, but we see that going in. A lot of people have that. Yeah. Like, it's like, like teach us the way, and then he gives them all a <laughs> piece just of the weapon. Them. Maybe Amazon exists, and they just two-day <laughs> ship them over to Arrakis. <laughs> Desert shipping, baby. Desert power. Um, upon completion, the rough cut without post-production effects ran over four hours long. This is the 84 Lynch version. David Lynch's intended cut, as reflected in the seventh and final draft of the script, was almost three hours long. So note it's almost three hours. So even David Lynch's, you know, finished version, you can call it his director's cut if you want to think of it that way, mm -hmm. would have been like, you know, two hours and 40 minutes, two hours and 50 minutes, somewhere in there. 
not much longer, an extra 40 minutes maybe longer than what we actually got, maybe 30 minutes longer than what we actually got. However, of course, Universal Pictures and the movie's financiers expected a standard two-hour cut of the movie so they could have more showings at the theater because they believed people were going to go see it at the theater. To reduce the runtime, Dino De Laurentiis and Raffaella De Laurentiis and David Lynch excised numerous scenes, and they filmed new scenes that would simplify or concentrate plot elements. They added the voiceover narrations and the new introduction from Virginia Madsen. And you, I feel like it's kind of obvious. Like, if you're looking at this movie knowing that they had to make cuts and simplify things, all the inner voice stuff, all of the weird, like, voiceovers that happen, some of the new scenes that feel very, like, okay, let's explain what happens now, guys, those definitely feel, like, added in. They don't feel as organic. So I, I could kind of see where they got added in. You want to know the funny part about that, Khalil? Uh, yeah. It, it, the thing is, is that a lot of those, like, whispery moments, yep. they're, they're actually, like, thoughts that people would have inside the book, sure. inside those moments. Like, I don't imagine, like, these scenes, at the very least, the majority of the mm -hmm. whispering scenes were because, like, other scenes were taken out because how else were they to imply those moments? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm unsure about it. In fact... It also kind of bothers me because just imagine, like, if the thoughts in your head were in a whisper. Are you telling like, me that yours aren't? Whisper. Mine are always in whispers. Khalil's face looks a little bit like a blue sponge. It's true. Like My the, face does look like a blue sponge. Like, you see... You a see, sentient blue sponge. It looks like I'm going to murder the blue sponge of your face. Uh, Which uh, I'm not. Sir Patrick Stewart has said in interviews that every cast member during this cut lost two scenes in the editing. That's a lot. That's a lot for every character. Every character. Side note, just as a random thing, when we're talking about David Lynch's involvement here, uh, did you notice the small David Lynch cameo in the movie? Ah, uh, yes, he was inside of the, like, little mine, if yes. you will. Like, I feel like at this like, point you've seen his face enough and you've heard his voice enough yep. that you probably realized it right away. Gordon Cole, what are you doing here? Do you think of him still as Gordon Cole yep. more than Lynch? Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, and I, I thought he did fine in his little cameo. But, if yeah, if you know Lynch, it's it's pretty obvious there. <laughs> I, I, I just wondered to myself, then, since there's so many of these cutscenes, when are we going to get the missing sand pieces? Well... <laughs> David Lynch has disavowed this film significantly. He he <laughs> will not give us anything more. If we get anything else, it's probably going to be from like whoever owns the rights to these things, archival footage maybe being found. But but Lynch himself is not going to deliver us a missing pieces anytime uh, soon. Or ever, I should say. You dang Judas Booth. Put a pin in that one. <laughs> Put a pin in Judas Booth. <laughs> oh, no. More background knowledge, by the way. I'm still going here. I'm still going here. You're still going? The suits worn by the guild members were body bags that were found in a disused fire station dating back to the early 1920s. The bags had actually been used several times, something that was kept from the cast members until after the shooting was completed. Genuinely, I'm surprised that they didn't realize it sooner, just looking at them. Yep. Like, there's points in which, like, the costuming in, in this looks nice. It looks a little bit futuristic. It looks a little off at times. Mm -hmm. But then you have, like, people literally walking in in trash bags with their little super megaphone. Actual body bags actually used multiple Bag times. Mm, neat. The total number of production crew came to 1,700. The movie required 80 sets built on 16 sound stages. More than six years in the making, it required writer and director David Lynch's work for three and a half years. 
200 workers spent two months hand-clearing the three square miles of Mexican desert for the location shooting. And some of the special effects were filmed with over a million watts of lighting drawing 11,000 amps. That's a lot of amps. That, that's just a lot of a lot. lot of electricity. Mm-hmm. 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 Maybe, maybe all the electricity stuff is just David Lynch saying how bad Dune was and how much electricity it used <laughs> being bad. So that is all the context I have as far as the making of the movie and the versions before Lynch and Lynch's intentions and everything like that. There is way more that is out there, but I feel like I gave you the tip of the iceberg. And if you want to plunge yourself further, go watch Jodorowsky's Dune, go do your own research if you want. That is just some of it. Do you have any specific reactions or thoughts hearing all these things? Anything that caught your attention with the context of this movie being made? Yeah, no, it just seems like Dune was a behemoth. It's as big as the sandworm that lurks beneath the surface, if you will, and only so many people could actually try to grasp it. And even then, eh, the landing may have not been so great. It's like a Tower of Babel affront to God. (laughs) It had to fall. It had to (laughs) fall. Super ambitious, but also, like, the thing that struck me is just when we talk about it being a commercial failure or a critical failure... It's, it's not like David Lynch just did, oops, I made a bad movie, LOL. Like, it's not like one person just made a simple mistake and then it all got derailed. Yeah. This thing costs so much money and so many resources and even more, like the amount of time that went into it, that there's just, again, you could do so much just talking about why this thing went the way it did. And that- we're, we're going to save our overall opinions on whether we like the movie or not till the end, but even just from the sense of, like, it being considered a failure by popular consensus... What a fascinating, like, trash fire of a film in terms of its production. Mm -hmm. It is most certainly wild, and I'm just kind of curious just because of all the resources that went into it. Just imagine the resources that would have been in the 12-hour version. Hey, maybe somehow it could have been less resources. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. And again, they were planning to make like more like, you know, Lynch would have probably been con like if this would have succeeded, Lynch probably would have been brought on to make more dunes, probably based on the other books in the series. Similarly paced, probably like each of them being about two hours, maybe 10 minutes, two hours, 10 minutes. Who knows? Uh huh. Yep. You know, there's going to be like uh, just continuing. Imagine a world we lived in where they had multiple of these. It's just going to be like sequels, you know, of like what happens after like Paul does his thing, uh, a prequel to say where the pug came from. All the important <laughs> questions we have for this film. Um, another thing also for listeners who've been with us a while or even new listeners, we oftentimes we're talking about the, a movie or like an episode. We try not to go like chronological and list everything that happened in the order Dune is a special case, I think Inland Empire might be a special case later, where just understanding what happens is something we have to cover. So we are going to go through it pretty much in order right now and just explain what's going on and react as we go through. Join us! You could literally watch the movie alongside with us. Yeah, consider this the commentary. Yep. (laughs) So we, we open up, like, again, very Star Wars looking, but not like old Star Wars, like prequel trilogy padme looking like the way that we have the 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 woman appearing here and speaking she looks like she's like padme so khalil yes 
I, I don't know whether you know this, but stars exist outside of Star Wars. And no, I mean the stars. way that she looks, her hair. The way that she looks? Like, the way that her hair? Like, how many people do you know that has her hair? Padme. Padme? Anyway, yes. Uh, that, 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 that's the one. That's also, the one Star Wars. I think it's or interesting. Or the one haircut every single yes. character from Star Wars yes. has. Including Chewbacca. The Padme. I, I, I think it's just also really interesting that Star Wars is, you know, beginning in a galaxy far, far away just like a long time ago. Like generally, just a mm-hmm. long time ago. And how all of Star Wars is a long time ago, including the stuff that happened like way before the old movies and after the, uh, still always a long time ago. Very vague. Dune, it's specifically the year 10,191. Yes. We know what, and I like how that, to me, that's a kind of a, a good, like, microcosm of the difference between Star Wars. Star Wars, the movies, don't usually care about the specifics of time. Maybe the, the, the books the do. The comics and books might care about that stuff. But the movies are just like, yeah, you're not here for that. You're here for lightsabers go boom, boom. So it doesn't really matter. But Dune is like, you, we know that you have a specific interest in the year 10,191. That still means nothing to me. Like, I don't, <laughs> I guess it's from our timeline. It's us in the future. Like 8,000 years, I guess. But it doesn't, it's so far in the future, it doesn't really mean that much It yet. is far in the future, but remember, this was like a larger planned, like, series. This was like a means of an actual world, grounding it with a year and then trying to expand either before or after it. It, it really leans into the more fantastic fantasy form of science fiction yeah. in which you're able to throw yourself into this world by making sure that you do understand the places, the things, the time. So I, I, I do think that there's a successful end with this. Well, I don't think I it's also, bad. I just think it's interesting, the difference. I, I will also bring up... Um, mm. I'm going to be talking about the book as we kind of go through yes. here. And there's two things I want to bring up. One, a lot of the scenes are actually pretty close to the book itself. There's large differences. There's certain things that aren't added to the film, especially for the How sake of time. How many pugs were in the book? Uh, none. That, 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 none? Not a single mm, one. No. That sounds no. like not good book. It, it, it sounds like a pretty good book that needs no pugs. But I, I'll bring up the bigger ones that yeah. kind of makes me itch. But I also do feel that they're could be a potential fault with say for example being this close and i'll i'll get it to that later like but put put my pin in that I feel i'm like actually gonna put a pin on the board khalil we are, that's my pin it, it's big and shiny i don't think you have any room blue. left after how many pins we've already put in you might be running out of room on the board i want my pin up there let me have okay, one okay 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 let me have one but yes secondly the princess to the emperor. Yeah. She actually is featured through the book chapter by chapter or section by section. Mm. I can't remember how the frequency is, but um, she is the main sort of context giver that sort of like tells us, hey, this is how things are. Exposition dump. And she's the exposition gnome. Basically, mm-hmm. she gives off bits and pieces of information for us to either refer to later or if it is a way of giving an insight of her perspective on it. Because for the most part, she's looking into Muad'Dib entirely. In fact, Muad'Dib is brought up pretty early in the mm. book before it's actually like given context okay. even. So instances like this, again, something that I feel is being adapted for the sake of like how it's been done in the book. So we get the year, and then immediately the next thing we get is who is ruling, and it's the Padasha Emperor Shaddam the Fourth. Yes, uh, I think it's it's interesting that 
the first thing we get not only is the time period, but the sense of who has the power, which I think works. I think that it makes sense for what Dune is like interested in as a story from what I can gather of it. The status quo of who is in charge and who has the weight of control, that is probably one of the most important things to know right off the bat. Okay. Um, so I think that's just an interesting like tone setter. Like imagine you you went to a new place and your friend is, you know, just the first thing they tell you about this place. Oh, by the way, did you know that the mayor of this town is named Billy? You know, like that that's the first thing you know. It's like, okay, this Billy's a pretty big deal. Like I got to know right off the bat, this guy's in charge. <laughs> um, then we get to the fact that it's, yeah, it's our father. We get to the most precious thing in all of the galaxy universe is spice, melange, which extends life and expands consciousness and can fold time to go for space travel. Yeah, ain't that funny. And she she brings up, just kind of again in, in this exposition passing, that the Spicing Guild for over 4,000 years has been using this spice. And there's been some mutating going on with that. And they can use this to travel to any part of the universe without, like, moving also i like how she's as she does this she'll sometimes disappear and there'll be the stars and then she'll like pop back in and say oh yeah i forgot to mention something <laughs> um and reappears and then she's like oh by the way the spice is only on one planet and it's, it's a raucous over here and they have these people called the fremen and they have a prophecy of a messiah and then then we get the planet dune title card we got the music toto is making their music I, okay i know you don't know the, the band very well i do not toto's main song is africa Cool. You know, like, a Bless the Rains Down in Africa? Get the Needs. You know that song, right? I think so. It's like, do, 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 ba, do. We're going to get copyright struck for that one. It, it's, no, no, it's, it's so all it, five notes. It's fine. Um, but no, they, they did that music. I actually thought the, the combination of Brian Eno and Toto works for the soundtrack. I thought it was good. Oh. Generally good soundtrack. Nice. Can I say that now? I know it's our general thoughts, but we don't talk about the music that much probably. No, no, that's great. I'm glad that you enjoyed it because I forgot all of it. Uh, I think it works in the moment. I think that it's something that probably happens in a moment. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> we we then get a secret report because we need more exposition at the beginning. The, the four planets that could jeopardize the spice operations. We get planet Arrakis. Okay, we know that's where the spice comes from. We get planet Caladan, which is where we meet House Atreides. Planet Gidi Prime, which is House Harkonnen. And planet Kaitan, home of the Emperor of the Known Universe. So these, all, these places do matter. Although planet Kaitan, do they even go to that in the movie? Um, we see no. the Emperor in like a ship. Will we ever um, go to that planet? I don't think. It's just so that we know that's there. You know, it's it's comfort it's comforting I, I, to know that. I feel like they could have just done the first three, and I would have got it. I don't know if they need to go through the fourth one. Because the to, fourth one, it, I can't remember four planets. That's yeah, too much to expect. Yeah, but still, the fourth planet is like there's people from that planet. I'm sure it's there like, are. Hey, you man, should mention hey, ten yo. more while you're at it. Uh, no, because Keep mentioning what, planets because this these are the ones that can affect it. All sure. those other planets don't matter, but these ones matter. That's fair. That is completely fair. And um, I like the font, by the way. It's like a nice century gothic style font, very like Kubrick, very 2001 A Space Odyssey maybe. Yeah, yeah, and it, it definitely is words that is implying that these are places. And they're they're sending someone to check on the situation for the spice must flow. The spice must so, flow. So giving, giving just kind of an overview of, of this section, a lot of exposition, a lot of information dumped on you. Okay. Um, it matters. It does generally matter. The, the majority of this, like, if you understand the spice is important, 
It allows for these things, these creatures to space travel. It's on Arrakis. These other two planets with the House Atreides and House Harkonnen, they could cause a problem, and the Emperor's involved too. If you get that, if you are able to <laughs> understand that in the first, like, five minutes it's blasted at you, it'll make the rest of the movie all make sense. Because really, they just gave you 80% of the plot. They really just did. <laughs> I just think that it happens so fast that people are just getting in their seats and with their popcorn in the theater or or snuggling up in their Snuggie at home. Not sponsored, but yep. please, sponsor. Uh, <laughs> they're sitting over there, and it's it's just a lot at the beginning. Okay. When I first watched Dune years and years and years ago, I watched it when I was binging all the David Lynch films. This is one I just didn't get. I, I watched it. I wasn't paying 100% attention. Okay. I didn't know what was happening most of the time. And when I take the notes, when I'm just sitting here and like actually focusing on it, the plot here isn't complicated. It's not. It's just cluttered. It is very cluttered. And so just, just talking about that beginning, would you agree the beginning exposition's not very effective the in the Lynch version? The beginning exposition, it's effective in the ways of setting things up, but it's very much not in the way that one would expect with how they're presenting it in film. When you show people these planets and you bring mm -hmm. up their absolute importance, the exposition portion is important and can be taken for like people to dive deeper, sure. But for those who are like going through the movie experience, sitting back and just sort of like taking it all in, mm -hmm. it's very cluttered. It is very sort of almost like, I'll call it lumpy. And we're going in with an advantage because you've read the book. Yes. And I've seen all the David Lynch films. Yes. And we're both right, taking notes and looking at this in-depth for a podcast. Yes. This is not a casual viewing. Nope. Um, if you just went into this because like, oh, I like Star Wars. And then they go in the theater to see this. That's very different from how Star Wars does like the scrolling text on the screen. Like, yeah, Star Wars does give you exposition at the beginning. But it's usually pretty broad strokes. And also, they're going to make it clear throughout the whole movie. Yeah. I find it much smoother. I'm not saying every wall scroll of, of Star Wars is successful. I still find Rise of Skywalker is very funny, how it just dumps major information in the in the scrolling text. Mm -hmm. But most Star Wars movies, the original movies included, they, they handled it a bit better. And I think we have to compare this to Star Wars a certain amount. Like, it's just, it was begging to be compared. After all, it is Star Wars for grown-ups. <laughs> so, it wouldn't be Star Wars for grown-ups without an emperor. I don't know if he's necessarily evil, but he's at, at least a medium-sized nuisance. In this movie, he is an <laughs> obstacle of some kind. Uh, the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, the the fourth. Um, by the way, his Isn't actor, hype. his actor is uh, Jose Ferrer, and that is the father of Miguel Ferrer, who you would remember as Albert Rosenfeld. Oh, yeah, Albert uh, Albert's actor's dad. Oh, yeah, is the Emperor. Ah, yeah. Hmm. So we get the scene with the. I really like the palace design, actually. It's pretty. It's a pretty strong and bold, like first interior area. It's very ornate, very the, shimmery. The interior design goes a long way. We're not talking about the outside two. of these ships. We're talking about the interior of yeah. The the, ex, the, the exterior. The I outside. think his was fine. It wasn't a screwdriver bolt like the other yeah. ones were. This one was fine. Um, but but yeah, I, I actually like the golden palace, the big old gates. Everything looks cool. And then all of a sudden, there's like this steamy train car that enters. <laughs> Steamy in the sense that there's steam, not because it's sexy. Although, <laughs> what's inside the train, maybe, depending on what you think is attractive. Nope. Because we get this, like, cool alien, like, big brain, wrinkly face. I put hotboxing behind the glass. I put vaginal mouth, which I never thought I'd have to write down for notes in a podcast. But I did have to write that down 
vaginal mouth. And uh, the eyes are moving, which I think is kind of cool. It, 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 to me, it strikes that balance where, and this is, I think, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily nostalgia, but I am definitely prone to liking very fun designs for physical props, physical puppetry, costumes, things that I could just imagine running into at like a Disney World, but like Disney World in space and <laughs> nightmares. And I really enjoy this thing. And this, the eye movement is enough to communicate that it's alive. I'm willing to buy into the fiction of it. Uh, I, I like the alien creature. I think that especially in this post eraser head world that we have, not only is this just the obvious evolution for ugly baby. Yes. But that's why I had to kill it before it became too strong. Mm -hmm, exactly. But I do think that there is like, I love the tangible nature of some of these practical effects mm -hmm. where you can actually like physically see this sort of thing. You could reach out and, and just, if you broke that glass, you could reach out and touch its slimy body. Suspension disbelief is only in the pacing of it, but at the same time, the irregularity of movement only kind of adds to the mm -hmm. almost fear factor. I agree. It's a lung canny. It's a lung canny. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and, and it, ha it clearly has like, power in the situation. I don't know if when I was watching, even taking notes, I'm not really sure what it is. I get the sense this is the spacing guild. This is the people, creatures that have been mutated by spice to fold space. Were they human before? I don't know what this thing is when I'm looking <laughs> at it. Is it in the book? It's the blue sponge. Um, That's one thing that I was having an issue with on what this creature was or what this creature was to be interpreted. So I know the spice to. mutates people, but that's a... That's a mutation. So the spice is something that it does, in fact, change people. But I'm unsure about that st mm -hmm. stake because, well, clearly on Arrakis, you'd imagine more Hakonans <laughs> yeah. than Fremens to be, you know, more waterberry. It's it's <laughs> waterberry. That's a good. It's a very tardigradian. Yeah, I like that waterberry tardigradian. Um, and, and it, it has power over the emperor. We know that like the emperor is the emperor of the known universe, but like the Illuminati shadow power here is the spacing guild and, uh, quoting here, you are transparent. I see many things. I see plans within plans. I see two great houses, house Atreides, house Harkonnen feuding. I see you behind it. You must share with us. So again, reestablishing the importance of house Atreides. House Arconan, and the Emperor's weird role that he's trying to pin both sides. And the Emperor, again, he has to say, so he does pretty much come clean here, that he feels worried because House Atreides is building an army and this sound technology they have, he just doesn't understand it. <laughs> and we also know that this Duke, Duke Leto, is like actually pretty popular. He could threaten the Emperor's rule. So we got to put a kibosh to House Atreides. We got to stop them. Now, what's the best way to get a House Atreides? Well, have some other house that's known for being like, I don't know, warmongering. Just, you know, smush them. Just have the house Harkonnen smush them. So they create the artificial like problem of kicking out Harkonnen from the spice mining, which they've made a lot of money on. Yeah. And putting House Atreides in there. So House Harkonnen can then go get it back and destroy House Atreides, have like a cover to do so, while secretly the Baron and the Emperor are in on this. Not to mention there's also the other sort of like political chess that goes through because the armies that do sort of like get involved are 
part of the royal army that is mm-hmm. being hired off by the Harkonnens. So there's also money being traded hands, which is likely going straight back to the emperor. He, there, this is so much of a tie to one side, like lose-lose situation for everyone else. Yeah, that- and I also do like the element here that, again, if we're going to praise the elements that are trying to be maybe a bit more complex than what you typically see in Star Wars... There is a galactic war. There is conflict. But instead of it being the clear emperor bad guy and the clear rebel good guy... For the most part. For the, I'm not done yet. There, There is definitely, like, comical evil happening here. But there is at least the nuance that there's power within power. That it isn't just, like, one bad guy controls everything. It's the barbarian weirdos of House Harkonnen are also being kind of worked in with the Emperor's grand schemings, but also the Emperor has to bow down to these spacing guild people. There is, like, within, and there's also, like, the Beta Jesuits that are also at play here, manipulating. There's a lot of manipulation, double play, sort of pushing people to different sides, which I think is a bit more interesting in terms of its scheming. It's the sort of, like, tight balance of making sure that everyone is either happy or everyone is doing what is necessary. I, I do that. wish the, the evil was more nuanced in the sense of it not being so hitting you over the head at times. Oh, oh what what do you mean, Khalil? <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you mean? The, the morally, morally ambiguous mean? character of uh, the Baron, right? Mm. I, I will at least say that the Emperor here doesn't seem, like, totally awful. He just seems like a guy who wants to maintain power. We don't really know what he's like. We don't know for sure. He 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 clearly is willing to like get people killed at unnecessary wars just out of fear of losing power, which doesn't put him in a good light off the bat. But I don't get like <laughs> mwahaha rubbing hands, staring into the void of de- evil becoming god of the new world sort of vibes. For now. For now. Also, Spacing Guild dude in in Hotbox is saying, I also by the BT dubs got a problem with this guy named Paul Atreides. <laughs> and and uh, Emperor's like, you mean Duke? Duke Leto, like his father? And he's like, no, no, I mean Paul. And this is where we get to the idea. I, I find it comical. Paul? Like Paul! You, that's the dangerous name we got, Paul. And we, we you know, I'm not going to let it be known. We're going to get to a character named Duncan Idaho. Duncan Idaho, at the very least, is not the main threat messiah of the universe. <laughs> Paul is. Paul. It's such a, like, just normal name. Watch the counter, Paul. We're now heading over to House Atreides. Yay. Getting their perspective here. Mm-hmm. Uh, over this, we get the narration from Princess Irulan, uh, giving more exposition. Yep. The subtitles tell me it's Princess Irulan, so I'm going to go with that. Yep, it, uh, that's the case. That She's between the pages, and now she's between the scenes. We're told about the powerful Bene Gesserit sisterhood. And we're really told about them before we've fully seen them. We did see one of the sisters with the emperor kind of pulling some strings from, again, behind the scenes here. But we didn't really know what she is. And I don't know if I was able to, like, if I didn't do notes with this, I don't know if I would have been able to fully connect, oh, that lady from the previous scene is one of them. I can in retrospect, but I don't think I really could have done it at the moment. So the Bene Gesserit sisterhood has for 90 generations. That's a long time been manipulating the bloodlines to produce a super being, uh, an ubermensch of sorts. And I'm going to say this name wrong. The Kisats Hadarak. You're pretty close. Thanks. No, no. I'm I, sorry if I mispronounced it. They are preparing more than anything. It's the, the biggest rule when it comes towards them is that you are not allowed to... B- 
bear any sons. Yeah, it's got to be all planned out by the group. Yeah, it, it's got to be planned out. It's got to be agreed upon because there has to be, well, I'd imagine a level of manipulation yep. when it comes down to the birth of such a powerful being. Because this being, this male being, is going to go far beyond these very, oh. very powerful women. <sighs> There's some gender aspects here for sure. Mm-hmm. So to prevent this, uh, Jessica, one of the Bene Gesserits, who is the concubine of Duke Leto Atreides, the the Duke. Uh, She had been told specifically, don't have any sons, have daughters. But, but, Duke Leto Atreides really wanted a son. And so she disobeyed, and we got Paul. Paul! Now we get to meet Paul. This is the theatrical debut of Kyle MacLachlan. The first time this actor has ever been in a movie, he plays Paul Atreides, plays the leading role. I don't know if he was involved much in theater or like local small-time things, but as far as major films, first major film appearance, first debut. What do you think of how Kyle MacLachlan did with this character? At first, I was like looking at him and was like, well, I'm glad that they got almost Eric from that 70s show. And then he opened his mouth and was like, oh, Kyle. You didn't recognize him at first? No. So that's our Agent Cooper. That's that's our Agent Cooper. Now, I, now, how much did it feel like Cooper to you? Like, did this feel like a different character or the whole way through where you were like, this is Cooper in space? This is, no, it's not even Cooper in space. This is a piece of plastic in space. Okay. This is like, like there'll be a little bit of folding and molding, but at the end of the day, it's just plastic. So I, I have read some varying accounts in terms of criticism on this performance. I've seen people praise it as like, he shows a lot of love for his fellow people around him. He's kind of got like a sparkle in his eye. He's got kind of that sort of wistful naivety at the beginning that then turns into a bit more hardened, like focus in the later part of the movie. That's the praise. Well, and clearly- I've also heard criticism that the performance feels very like sleepy, very phoned in, very, like you said, plasticky maybe. And I'm not sure if I put words in your mouth there, but um, no, no. I've heard positives and negatives. And I'm curious, so do you lean on the negative side? I lean on the neutral to negative, which I think leaning on neutral is a negative in and of itself. Yeah, it wasn't a good performance either way. It was, it was not really a performance. Like it was, he was going through the motions, but I also find that, it is layered for a lot of individuals in this film to behave in a way that's almost as if everyone's waiting their turn so like to do s- something. Side note then, who do you think gave the best performance in this movie for an actor? We don't have to say why yet because we can get to the character later, but like you can if you want. Who do you think gave the best performance? So, kind of kicking my butt on this one. Good. Because it's something in which, like, I still find perplexing for all sorts of reasons. But I'm kind of into what this character is trying to sell. And that has to be uh, Fade Rautha. So Sting? Sting. Sting is your favorite actor here. uh, He'd be my favorite actor. But or favorite performance, you might want to say. Favorite performance. Because a better way to word this. No, that's the much better way to go about it just because again as far as these items go i i'm a big avid person whenever it comes to if you're changing things fantastic like Mm -hmm. if you're going to not change things also fantastic let this lead you whatever way it needs to be to become what you feel it needs to be and in this case though what we got instead of the fake that was found within say for example the books uh, this very rivalous character growing up in far different circumstances than Paul 
in this much more devious and unkind world, but at the same time still have to weigh with what he must inherit. It's not that anymore, and it's just this very <laughs> hyper-realized person. That it, it seems like his just sheer presence that he's just there and you should be impressed. And I've got to say, every time that he is on screen, I'm still impressed. It, he's It's kind of weird. Like, Paul is meant to be, like, the Ubermenschian messiah. But I, in terms of that, again, Ubermensch, Superman, Overman sort of vibe, I definitely get that out of Sting's performance in this. Yeah. Just he is all max stats. Yep. Like, he was maxed out in every stat. And he has no shame wearing his metal G-string. Tell me more about this metal G-string. We will in due time. In Duke time. Oh. Oh. So, Paul, back to him, the Duke's son. I actually am on the slowly positive side of Kyle McLaughlin's performance. You're wrong. I might be. I might legitimately be. I cannot watch this unbiasedly, and neither can you. No. We are both going in with so much bias in different ways from the books and from the Lynch movies and everything in Twin Peaks. I have a natural bias for Kyle McLaughlin at this point. But I do feel like his performance... I end up sympathizing and having an interest in his character a lot of the times. And I, I sense a bit of magnetism and not really charisma, but like magnetism in his personality that like he's, I wouldn't call him mysterious, but I don't fully know what he's thinking. A lot of times there's a playfulness to it. And the moments where I would say it overlaps with Cooper are the moments where we see a sort of like coy playfulness that you don't quite know this guy's full potential. Cooper sometimes does it too, where he'll just make a joke and it's just like the look in his eye where it's like this, this man, this man is on another level. The man's in a weird plane of mind. <laughs> and there's just moments where like, even early on in the introduction here, there's all these, these footsteps behind him in the hallway. And Paul is facing his back toward the hallway. He gets chewed out by that. And he's like, no, I heard it was you. And they're like, well, it could have been someone imitating her footsteps. Like, nah, I would have known. And then one of the guys' inner voice is like, he might have. Uh, so I, I kind of like the sort of playful childlike way at the beginning that then turns into resolved Messiah by the end. It isn't a very strong performance in terms of like emotional range. Yeah. But I think it carries neutrality in a way that works. He, I think Paul's a neutral character in this movie. Heavily. But I think it works for his position he's in. As far Whereas as... Whereas Sting is not neutral. Nope, not neutral. <laughs> he is very making, clearly on a side. He's clearly making decisions. Now... He's not a pawn the way that Paul is kind of a pawn. I would say almost, and this is overall character interpretation, Paul is a pawn in the terms of the Bene Gesserit plans, in terms of the Spacing Guild plans, in terms of the Duke... Uh, hierarchy you know to be next in line and he's almost becoming more self-aware by the end when the dreamer awakens he knows his place and can maneuver things but for most of the film he is just kind of being guided by fate and prophecy which is maybe why i'm more willing to accept a more neutral character i think that the hardest part about it is that mix in that very neutral sort of take in mix in the whispers in the takes Mm -hmm. and thoughts and mix in the fact that like a lot of things that come Paul's way, just kind of like slap him in the face and he kind of rolls with it. It makes it feel like between his performance and what happens to him, a lot of things just don't feel earned for Paul. It just seems that for the most part, he does get in a few tussles and he does win Mm -hmm. in the end, but it's only in these small snippets. Am I just like, whoa, okay. But then otherwise it's like, oh, okay. 
And that a lot of comes out the writing too. Yeah. You know, the way he's scripted as a character. Yeah. It is tough to separate actor and script in some cases. I just, I have less of a problem with McLaughlin's performance as I do with the writing. I separate actors and scripts because one's paper and one's person. You know what? But both no, they- I don't think so. I am a Chalk Zone fan. I believe that all chalk is paper is people. Gotcha. Okay. I guess uh, I'll take your advice and you're going in the shredder after I'm this. going in the shredder. You're going to go in Yay! the shredder because you're just paper to me. Um, so we get Paul. We have him getting uh, some re- doing some research. He's he's taking advantage of his you know free subscription to Audible and he's learning more about you know the world around him. Which, by the way, if you happen to get Audible by any chance, you could potentially check out the Dune book, which is actually well read. Not sponsored. I'm not sponsored. And um, we get some some very sweet worm hype. Worm hype, baby. Worm hype. We get worm hype. No one. I like how early in the movie. I like how early in the movie we get worm hype. It knows we're here for the worm. No one says that. So no um, one. No one. You are the first person to ever like state worm worm hype. hype. Thank you. Your hashtag worm hype. Hashtag worm hype. So um uh. The people who entered, I mentioned them earlier with the back being turned. That's Thufir, Dr. Yue, and Gurney. They're here. Thufir? Yep. Thank you. So context on Gurney Halleck first, just just here. You know, please tell me. Please tell me the context on Gurney Halleck. Please tell me more about Gurney. So Sir mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart mm-hmm. is Gurney. And it was actually a mistake. It looks like it. It sounds like it. A lot of it seems like a mistake. <laughs> so... In a rush to replace another actor, David Lynch had thought he'd hired a different Patrick Stewart to play this character. <laughs> Excuse me. I saw this on multiple sources, so Excuse it wasn't like one me. place. Yeah. If true, one of them was Screen Rant, one was IMDb, but yeah. So supposedly it wasn't even the right Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, how'd you get on set? And this was before he was in Star Trek, so I think this would have been one of his earlier, well, not early role, but... I don't know. He's still well-known enough. You think he would know which guy you're getting, but I don't know. They <laughs> like, just I liked him enough, you know? Didn't, like, someone audition or, like, they have a phone number I... or a file? Or did just David Lynch like, get me Patrick Stewart? It's He's weird. Like, I didn't mean that, Patrick Stewart. I meant the one at the burger place. It's it's very confusing because it feels like a made-up thing, but it's also so specific that I'm like, why would this be made up? I don't it, know. It's in that area where maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It makes sense on why Gurney Halleck then, this very like lighthearted soul, this very jokey. In the book, is he lighthearted? Is, he is much more jokey. He huh. is much more. I would say that he's like a it, take a Han Solo character with a uh, like that bit, bit of a scoff and a smirk, but at the same time, he is still well and ready to okay. show Paul what's for. So I would say yes, he's got more levity to him. Um, <laughs> Not this guy. No, he's <laughs> not the like, movie version. Paul, no, it is time to train. And this Die. scene, <laughs> and stab, this stab, scene, stab. This scene still happens. Like there, there's still like yeah. enough like dialogue going through, and there's a flashback that does incorporate him actually playing the instrument. For this one, Sir Patrick Stewart doesn't know what to do with it. He's just holding onto it and then like uh, chucks it aside. The instrument, by the way, is called a balisset. Yeah, and it is actually in real life a Chapman stick, an electric guitar and bass created in the 1970s by Emmett Chapman who is also playing the music that we hear. Which, by the way, you're not going to see Gurney doing anything with. No, you know, he does Gary, not play this music. He, he plays the knife. He plays the knife. When Paul says he's not in the mood for shield practice, we get this. One of my favorite lines from the movie is Gurney replying, mood's a thing for cattle and love play, not fighting. Is that a, I don't know if you remember that. Is that in the book? 
Uh, that I believe, mood is I a lo- so. thing for cattle and love play. I believe so, but again, like this is coming from a character that is actively like described as and written like a bard. Still, yes, still serious at times, and but, that line itself you could probably hear in a very bardy tone. But Patrick Stewart just, just like, delivers it. <laughs> I feel like Patrick Stewart feels like he got mixed up with another Patrick Stewart, yeah. where he was told he got mixed up with another Patrick oh, Stewart. Man. So he's just like at this point, he's like, "Well, now I'm the here line and I'm is, upset." The line is funny, but it's played totally. Totally straight. It is so. It's so straight. It's so straight. Almost as straight as polygons, which they have now become. They have become. They have become a Minecraft. They've, they've become, become a, the Minecraft. Minecraft Gumby. All the jokes we could possibly make. The squares. Now, I'm gonna hot take. Hot I take. like this effect. You like this effect. I like, but I also like. I saw Tron for the first time. I think it was either this year, early this year, or late last year. I like outdated sci-fi visuals. I, and when it gets to this sort of weird attempt at distorting reality, where you can clearly tell what it's trying to do, I have never seen a movie, I don't think, where someone becomes boxy. <laughs> and the way that they sound and look when they're moving, it is so otherworldly. It, I, yes, I know it's, it's, it's kind of a silly thing. I kind of like it. I kind of find it charming and effective in its own way. There is a charm to an effect that's similar to me standing across the hallway shaking like a thing of tinfoil around. Um, I like this thing. I'm probably in the minority who likes that. It prob- probably, but I, I think you're valid. I think you're valid for liking it. I am it. valid. Yay. You're Put valid. me in the shredder. You're going in the shredder regardless. Enjoy it while you can. And uh, they, they take the fight quite seriously. At first, Paul again not in the mood, but Gurney's bringing the knife and he's like trying to draw blood. Like if he does not fight it to his maximum, he will get hurt. And... Mm-hmm. Eventually, you know, Paul's like, things have gotten so serious recently. And Gurney's like, we're going to Arrakis. Arrakis is real. Harkonians are real. War. War never changes. And then, you know, they go in for the, they go in for the, the attack. They go in for the attack. And it would have basically been mutual death if they would have drawn their blades the way it happened. So yes. it kind of sets up a few things. I do think it's doing some narrative weight here. We get the sense that Paul, not as committed of a fighter. He's got that sort of youthful... I don't want to fight, man. I just want to learn about space worms. Yeah, I got the Audible subscription. And Gurney, we learn, is not funny, not a bard. He's totally serious. But the fact that they're on equal par does tell us that Paul, even though he's not really interested in fighting that much, even though he's not really that... We don't see him as like a super fighter type. He can hold his own against someone trying to kill him that is, like, military trained. Well, yes, that is the case, but I do think that still Gurney's strengths still ride out very nicely because I feel that the means of having a draw was intentional Mm. in order to make sure to realize that it's not that easy. And also to emphasize Paul's willingness to, like, throw himself at the goal when he needs to, but how that also exposes his weaknesses. I think it also does do a bit of loose foreshadowing on the idea that Atreides and Arconan will take each other out in a okay. weird way. Although I don't know if the metaphor is as clear as it could be. Like the just the idea of you manage to land the killing blow, but then they land the killing blow on you. I feel like we almost kind of get that in the sense of what happens with Duke Leto later and mm-hmm. the Baron. But in the Lynch version, the Baron doesn't get killed by it. So it doesn't happen immediately, but then later Paul does do the killing blow. So kind of they killed each other, but also Paul's still alive. So it doesn't fully work, but there's almost something you could argue is happening in a metaphorical foreshadowy way. I I will say um, the death of the Baron and so on is something that does come out 
far later into the film, there is the failed attempt yeah. at the assassination. So, yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? It, it almost it, is doing it, something it thematically. It almost does it. It almost, almost. Does it. And you know what? You get an A for trying. No, you don't. I mean, you get a special trophy for trying. No, no, clearly. Scratch and sniff sticker. What does it smell like? It smells like worm. That's right. Worm hype, baby. We find out these worms can get as large as 450 meters long. I put that as space, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, space, wow, space, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. That's art right there. That's that's an art form of you slamming your keyboard a bunch of times. We uh, we get told the Fremen and Arrakis have blue eyes because spice. And we continue to see them have blue eyes, so it makes sense. I'm willing to believe that. As far as the world <laughs> is covered in spice, and obviously we'll go more into detail on like the eye condition and how like that is very ritualistic, if you will, um, how they gain that. Mm-hmm. But spice is most certainly a very complicated substance that the Fremens are very attached to. For one reason or another, and yeah, it, it 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 having just like the sheer like blue eyes, sort of like peering uh, from any vantage point, especially in sa- this little older film, mm-hmm. is very unsettling. It I most, like it. It most certainly gives the Fremen that otherworldly feel, but still keeping things very human. I think it really, really works visually because you can have a variety of emotional responses to seeing the bright blue eyes. But it's like a mix of mystery, otherworldliness. But then also you can read that as it's very pretty. It's very beautiful, but also like terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I think that mix of like terrifying and beautiful and mysterious works in part. And this is where, again, grand themes will will, will kind of be building as we go through here. I am aware from from reading up that later on in the Dune series of books, Mm -hmm. Paul becomes a more morally complex character. And I won't say more specifics in case that gets into spoilers beyond the first book. Mm -hmm. But I think even within the Lynch film, even within, and I won't say too much, but the Villeneuve film, you can read aspects of Paul and aspects of the Fremen as rather menacing. And like their whole prophecy Messiah thing that the Bede Gesserit have been in, it's not really clear if this is the good thing. Like the amount of war and bloodshed that needs to happen to have your Messiah happen. And I don't even know what the long-term effect of this Messiah is going to be. Mm -hmm. Having this mysterious group of blue-eyed people just usurp everything all of a sudden and put their new emperor in as their chosen holy warrior. I don't know where that's going. I don't know if this is good. This, is this going to go to the Crusades now? Like, where is this happening? It's it's going to go wherever it needs to go. I feel that whenever you put someone in a high position, whether it is around a sisterhood or yeah. desert people, it is most certainly going to complicate those people's lives. And considering the amount of themes inside of Dune, again, from what I, I haven't read the book, but from what I've read of, of reading the book, like context reading of it, is that there is a lot in there about the corrupting forces of power and the amount of distrust and a distance you should have from those in power. Hmm. Um, it's wary of regimes. It's wary of uh, potentially control from an absolute <laughs> authority. So again, the more that we hype the Messiah, the more that we have these groups of people, super warriors trained with blue eyes, it's both like pretty but also like pretty scary. (laughs) I like that. Anyway, we get this extended combat scene between Paul wearing the weirding module, firing at a robot that looks like it belongs in robot wars. 
just like spin a doodle in around. Yeah. I looked, don't got a lot to say about it. I just thought it was funny that they took enough time to do this and like, all the things that were cut. They were like, no, we need to establish this part right here. Again, another sort of spot that's just kind of like a shows off this up further technology of the world, but B it's another the portion of what was already accomplished with the scene beforehand but now with the sonic screwdriver with dentist equipment. <laughs> and that is most certainly good with showing off Paul's abilities, but did we really need more of that? No. This was this feels like a really unnecessary scene in a movie that desperately needed other things. So, it, uh, whatever. I just think it was kind of whatever. I mean, at the very least, it looks like a cool thing that dropped from the ceiling. Uh, what would have maybe needed more time is a certain character named Duncan Idaho. Yeah. When I, <laughs> like with a name like Duncan Idaho, you already know everything you need. I, I got to admit, when I watched this movie with Duncan Idaho, I you meet him right after the, the, the weirding module robot scene. You know, he, you meet him and you have a little conversation. And then he shows up a couple times later. But when he, when he dies later, I was like, who? I look, looked at him like, I kind of remember you. Who? Star-Lord, man. I, I don't think that uh, the Lynch version really does a good job with Duncan at all. I think he's completely just like half a character. I don't get a personality out of this guy hardly. I It's implied based on how McLaughlin's acting that yeah. they're friends. But I don't know him. I don't know Duncan. And... Uh, I, so I feel like, you know, instead of having the weirding module scene, maybe you could add more with Duncan. Maybe that would have, like, extend that scene a bit, because it's the next scene anyway, uh, personal preference. Yes, as far as Duncan goes, he's not really, like, a large presence. He's a good little, like, gatestone between, like, the two cultures, between the Fremen as well as the Atreides family. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, it's it, it's... It's something which I do think Duncan does deserve more spotlight in yeah. both bits of media. Uh, and yeah, hope, hopefully one day we'll get more Duncan Idaho, but who knows what reality that ever may be. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought it was very good and funny and not at all horrifying in a crusader type way when Duncan says, may the hand of God be with us all as they go off to go potentially enact war. I mean, going into a situation that could easily erupt into terrifying consequences, knowing that there is a little bit of that religious, like, theocracy vibes going on with the militancy here makes me worried. And again, nothing wrong with, like, you know, may God be with us all, Godspeed in, like, a neutral way. But the way he says it and the way the scene feels, it really feels like they are now about to enact holy war. Maybe that's just my own worry about it. It is something that I'm genuinely curious on because the... Use of, like, a near-religious figure we've gotten from, like, Paul. Mm -hmm. What sort of religion even exists in the world beyond Paul? We don't know what House Atreides believes in this yeah. movie. Like, we're not really sure. <laughs> also, we find out that Thufir, is that how I say it? Thufir. Thufir has served the House Atreides for three generations, and that Paul is one of the finest students he's ever taught. This is communicated in a conversation where Paul walks in on his dad dramatically staring out the balcony. Very, very dramatically staring out the balcony in the rain. Um, we find out that UA, Gurney, and Duncan all say the same thing. Paul is OP. Great, great warrior, great fighter. We needed that, you know, Robot Wars fight and Gurney's fight to portray that. Now we've been told it, really cementing that idea of the warrior. Mm -hmm. We get some quotes here from the dad bonding with the son that, you know, hopefully that going to Arrakis will form a great change for Paul that a person needs new experiences 
because they jar something deep inside that allows a person to grow. Oh, oh, oh boy. Yeah, that's with, totally gonna... Yep, that, that's the way that phrase it! And without change, something sleeps within us and seldom awakens. The sleeper must awaken. But the sleeper is not awake yet because Paul is over sweaty, having wild dreams in his bed while napping. He gets to say to himself as he's having visions so that we know again what's happening, Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet. And then he, then he sees Sting, who is chuckling, and the voice of Sting, I will kill you! Then the second moon, water drops, Lady with the Blue Eyes show up. Tell me of your homework. Homework? I put tell me of your homework. <laughs> tell so. me about your homework, Paul. Do you Do have you Algebra 2? <laughs> I really because put homework instead of homework. Algebra U. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know based on his abilities to become, like, geometrical, he's, he's done geometry. He's fine. Yeah. Uh, so he has all these visions. I actually really like, throughout the movie, the dream sequences and the vision sequences. I like the water dropping effect. There's some cool, like, visuals with, like, black and white water yeah. that I thought looked really good. Like, they haven't aged badly at all. They look really good. I think that this is also Lynch's wheelhouse. When it comes to, like, creating hazy dreamscapes he's done this already with elephant man and with eraser head in his short films this is good it's playing to his strengths mm -hmm. the narration does get a little overbearing but even when it repeats like the, the they bring up the moon a lot during the whole movie it yes. kind of tethers the whole thing to like a central vision um this is where i think the dream sequences and vision sequences are often more successful than the inner voices from other characters um because again it cements this idea that there is a prophecy there is a dream guiding the whole story yeah, instead of, again, weird, dissonant whispers. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, it just takes you out of the moment. As we go, I have a feeling that Khalil is going to kill me. I'm going in the shredder. <laughs> Khalil is going to make me, me better. After he shreds himself. But However, outside it's getting wetter. And I feel that this is starting to get very, what, what? wetter? Like wetter. It's raining outside. Is it raining your And body? a Bene Gesserit lady with a bunch of her posse walks out and uh, she meets up with, with Jessica here and we're gonna we're gonna test Paul. We're gonna test Paul. We're gonna test Paul. And no man has ever been tested with the box. So tonight Jessica may lose her son. But um Paul Ma Palm's mom, cool with it. Like this shows how much power again the Bene Gesserit have over the mother that, you know, she disobeyed them by having the son. They allowed it. But now that they're like, this guy might be the Messiah. Okay, we're going to test him. Your son has a good chance of dying right now, and Jessica cannot really fight it. She has no power within this, like, sect to really fight the situation. Mm -hmm. With this powerful being, this this mother, mother above mothers, mm -hmm. she gets Paul into the same room, and she produces a box. Yes. And she just says, put your hand in the box. So, put your hand in the box. And then just slowly, eventually, we get a point where the hand, it goes in the box, doesn't it? It do. It does go in the and, box. And importantly, at his neck, uh, the woman holds the Quickly. gom jabbar. Yep, a gom jabbar. On her finger. Yep, so there's this very poisonous needle that... If he dares, like, do anything about it, she's just going to straight up, there's the murder. And I kind of like the wording here that it only kills animals and the idea that if you act in the way that an animal would act, if you act upon instinct to recoil, 
mm-hmm. if you act in the sort of fearful way that an animal might react, then you will die. But if you can ascend the human form, ascend the animal side of you and control your body with total control and not remove your hand, no matter how searing the pain is, you can live. I mean, with all the sort of setup prior to it, like, and plus the fact that it seems to be a gradual pain, it seems like kind of an ineffective test. To be completely honest, mm. it's an ineffective test. I love the visuals on the test and what happens as like time goes on and it shows uh, like how like I love the yeah the harmful. cutaway into what Paul imagines is happening with his hand. Very yes. effective. It, it is very effective, and I think that that does sell the pain very well. I also really enjoy the woman, the Bene Gesserit priest, like as he's feeling the pain, she's like describing things. So like she's describing the way it could possibly feel. Um, she's talking about the itching, then a burning, heat upon heat. He must not fear. And then, of course, at this point, Paul is telling himself he must not fear. Fear, fear is, is the mind, mind killer. killer. There you go. The quote of the movie. Fear the is the mind the killer. The quote of the movie, the quote of the book, the and quote. He it's also, quote. I also think it's interesting. He says, fear is the little death that brings obliteration. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, speaking of little death, you know, we do know that Jodorowsky said this is a French film, not an American film, or at least his version was going to be. And we all know the French idea of the little death, don't we? No. Really? Yeah. Okay, we do. Good. No, I don't Really know. don't? Oh. You don't. I answered the, yes the, because the I do not death, know. The little death in French is a euphemism for orgasm. Oh. And I don't, that has to be intentional because it's like a very, very well-known euphemism. So that's and why li- the cocktail is named that. Anyway, so, so now you know things. Now I know. It's supposed and, and, to like taste, it tastes really good. It's one of their most famous ones, but that's probably because it's supposed to taste like, And you usually know, it's orgasm. in the French, the Le Portit Mortis. I feel like it's too in, too likely to be intentional, but what does that mean that fear is the orgasm? Fear is the orgasm. That's a very interesting way of wording fear it. Fear is the sudden, I would say that. Again, we go with instinct. We go with the idea of something abrupt. I mean. It, you, yeah, I'd say abruptness is going to be the main thing. I think that fear is something that acts entirely out of an instinct and emotion, something that is very internal and mm-hmm. the likely desire that comes from someone partaking upon And the themselves. whole pleasure-pain dichotomy also comes into here that there is that yes. overlap. And I don't know if this line existed in the original Dune or the original screenplays. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. remember hearing it in the new Dune. I'll just say that. I don't think I heard that line. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder if this was a Lynch edition. I do wonder without confirmation. Okay. But, uh, but going surprise, back to- <laughs> uh, Paul but, succeeds. Yeah, yeah. So going back to my point uh, with this is that this is actually a very bad test because if you're trying to see how an animal may behave and you hold the mm-hmm. something saying that this will kill you to the neck and say that, no, this is how, like, usually animals would do. Keep your hand inside the chest. And being threatened with it, damned if you do, damned if you don't, I suppose. But on one hand, if someone does try to... Re- <laughs> one hand. If someone, like, is actively putting their hand in and not trying to retract it, I can't imagine a scenario where, like, slow pain wouldn't at the very least, like, allow you to just focus in on that pain and almost become nearly numb to it Mm. instead of, you know, like sun pain, because whenever I get sun pain, that's when I react. That's when I move. And that's when I I try to get out of the way. So you would have rather had the box. It's going to suddenly without warning hurt you. 
and you cannot pull it away, and you do not know when it's going to happen. And it's like just a sharp, abrupt pain. Because that would have been I, a better test. I, I think that that does uh, is much better just because even just the act of the, the fear anticipation. and the act of waiting. Yeah, it would have made more sense. Granted, I also think for the movie, the thematic element, I'm willing to forgive the fact that it might not be as effective, really, uh, mm-hmm. for the fact that cinema, cinem- cinematically, like just as a movie, watching the buildup, hearing the lady talk about the itching, then the burning, then the buildup, I thought it was very effective, so I'm willing to overlook it. Now, mind you, I don't think that it has to be a sake in which like it's an effective test to be here or anything like that. I'm asking, if this test is ineffective, would the mother know that, and why would she take it to this case? Mm-hmm. And in this case, especially when after the test is passed... And after it is handled, I don't think that she wants, like, Paul or anyone to really even fail these well, things. And, and I think that the point of the indoctrination mm-hmm. of it all yeah. to succeed in this task and to just be sort of pat-patted in on your head. And prime, face, in, prime into the mindset. Yep, prime into the mindset. To like overcome saying, fear. Like, looks like you are a man. Looks like you were able to handle this. Take yeah. this as a lesson. Know because, that we would not hesitate to murder you if we had. Yeah. And not... And at that point, like, Paul would probably start to consider their side. I I, I think that it's much more of a mental game than it is like, yep, here we go. Are you man or are you animal? I I think that's very good observations. I mean, realistically, yeah, maybe the Bene Gesserit would have killed him if he had failed, but... Could you imagine the fallout of doing that? Like, killing the Duke's heir? Like, that's a pretty big move. Like, I don't doubt the well, Bene Gesserit we'll see, are powerful. I'm with the Emperor now. I, you yeah, that would anything. have such ramifications. Like, don't get me wrong. She has power. The 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 sect of the Bene Gesserit have power. But that's not a small thing. So they must... I, th- I feel like going in, they were very confident he would pass. They just didn't know to what degree. Because mm-hmm. there's a comment she makes afterward, again, whether pre-planned or whether actually genuinely surprised. Yeah. She says no woman child ever withstood that much. Uh, again, not only is this not a test that ever a man has ever been given, supposedly, uh, he's made it farther than any woman has. Which again, there's a gender element here. Yep. Women are typically given this test to withstand the pain and they, you know, have a chance of success, but not that long. She kept it going longer and worse than mm. she typically would allow. It's almost like she was seeing how far he would go. I almost wonder if she sensed he was about to pull away, if she would have stopped the test earlier. I, I do wonder, again, that element, too. Yes. Who knows? Who knows? Oh. The, uh, the priest witch lady then asks if he knows about the water of life, a.k.a. the bile from the newborn sandworm of Arrakis. It's very dangerous, but it also allows you to see within. And there is a place, terrifying to women. It is said that a man will come. The Kwisatz Haderach. Yep. And he will go where the women cannot go. Mm-hmm. And many men have tried, and many men have died. Gender. Yep. And and I don't know, you know, now we might as, as good a time as any. Like, what do we think of the way that this is so focused on the masculinity and the male dominance of Paul, or even, to some extent, of his opponent in Fade? That there's this sort of manpower going on here, that the women will have their little secret group that has collective power and they will prepare for this great man. Yeah. But it definitely is the man that has to do these things. It could not have been a daughter. And not only that, like they must go in a way that women cannot. Then on the other flip side though, you do have the sister later who seems to be like also max stats and everything, but in like creepy child horror form of it. 
So like, I don't know how much, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's flat out sexist. I don't think it's that simple, no. but it is very gender dichotomy. Like there's definitely divides, like certain things women can do, certain things men can do. Both can max out certain stats, but there are differences being displayed in this world. I think that there is most certainly, uh, especially with the sisterhood that we do see, there is a lot of power that does come even just from that fold. But there's also the larger question I would have to say is that the fact that Paul is this way and this writing would be this way, if we flip the script around yeah. entirely, how much would that really change? Yeah. And whether or not, like, if it was just a quick shorthand of finding a difference with born children and the easiest way was for the at the time um identifiable traits that would be masculine or feminine that well, would and be this preferred is, this is also where my brain would go and wonder either what the book source material just within what we can speculate about the movie whether or not the main thing that makes the man more able to do it is a genetic biological factor that there's something chromosomal or testosterone or something specific to you know, the cisgender traits of a biological male, blah, blah, blah. Is that the thing? Is it like a, a body thing? Or is it the qualities of masculinity in a cultural sense? Because I wonder about your situation of, I mean, obviously I'm not going to expect there to be, unfortunately, not mm -hmm. really any trans representation here. Mm -hmm. But if there had been a trans man, or perhaps more likely given the time this work was made, even like an Oscar Rosa Versailles situation of a biological woman raised masculine traits. If you had like a warrior woman who was in all categories, quote unquote masculine, but didn't, wasn't born biologically female or, or, or sorry, wasn't born biologically male. Would that have worked? Like, could they, could they have had that happen? Mm -hmm. You know, what was the main thing here? What what makes it have to be a man? Is it the biology or is it the culture? Is it the near the, what's going on here? The nature or nurture? I, I I think that it's leaning of a, a large amounts towards just like something faded chance, uh, something that one is born into more than anything. I think that Paul being led into this world that's almost beginning to consume and swallow him, such as the sands, uh, unforgiving of Arrakis is something that's very important for the character. It's just something that also kind of like makes you kind of like twinge and kind of like, eh, yeah. when it comes down to, again, being the single male figure in this society of women that is supposed to lead. Uh, I, I think to myself like uh, Ganondorf from Legend mm. of Zelda, which actually has kind of those similar sort of vibes, but at the same time, it shows how capable these other individuals are as you continue to ex explore the Gerudo people. Um, there's also the example that is very iffy on, like, say, for example, Paul coming to lead the Fremen people, which this white male coming to lead yeah. a people. Now, mind you... I believe that they're all white inside in, in of the like Lynch version. Lynch film. They're mostly white yep. coded, yeah. But, but the the naming conventions, the iconography, just even the way things are explained, it feels very Middle Eastern. Yes. Uh, just in terms of the influence. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I agree. And and also the element that it is not just a white person, but it is a 
a, a white person from a group that was essentially colonizing the area and commandeering it. Yep. It's not just like a random white guy who adopted their ways or something. No, it is the conqueror. <laughs> like here he comes. Uh, it's, 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 I feel like it's rooted in a sort of worldview that when we look at it with modern scrutiny, doesn't quite check out, mm -hmm. but I don't want to go out here and try to like cancel it or something. Like, I don't think it's that, straightforward i think that but I, I can also see why someone would not like it for that reason <laughs> yeah I, I can see where people wouldn't like it i think that that's why it's important that paul's father was written out to be more of this peacemaker yes if you will that does uh, help just trying his best to make sure that people are taking care of people before any sort of object he's been put into a position of power but at the same token he's been put there not by his like yeah but it also feels like it could have been examined more because we're still led to believe that Duke Leto is just like good guy pretty much. He's just but he good. is going there to <laughs> occupy this area of this other world, these other yeah. people's world. He's like a benevolent colonizer, mm -hmm. but he's still a colonizer. I don't know. Um, now, now going into something we can all agree on, we can all agree on. We I... stand by House Harkonnen. You know, no. we might say House Atreides. You guys are you guys are benevolent. You guys are, are good. You act like you're good and all, but you're 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 just trying to take advantage of people. House Harkonnen, however, they do not pretend to be something they're not. You know, they uh, are all in on what they're doing. I I know. I'm pretty sure they're pretending to be something that they're not. And what is that? Bat shit. <laughs> are they or are they not? Which one is pretending? Which one's Still real? Still working on okay. that. So we 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 get a chance. How, how 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 would you describe our like introduction to like this like realm, if you will, that is beyond our own realm and beyond the realm? Of, it, it feels like it, it was shot differently. It feels like like the atmosphere is different, doesn't it? I really like this aspect about the David Lynch version is that you never know what you're gonna see. No, you might find some beautiful ornate palace. You might go to where people are wearing trash bags. You do not know where you're ever going. It, so it, it's you, like you, it's like it's like you're given a vehicle and you're given the gas, but like it's like David Lynch like intentionally took the wheel out and you just kind of like see where you land. And we know that David Lynch has a penchant for finding beauty in like factories and industrial areas, and he can find beauty in the dark elements. I don't know if he finds beauty in House Harkonnen and the world that we're going into. We we have a very industrial vibe, though. We we open up to, like, this giant, like, mouth and, like, smoke coming out of it. And there's just all this, like, visuals and sound that imply industry, machinery, artificiality. But, like, in a very mechanical sort of way. Mm -hmm. Not in a virtual way, but, like, a very tangible, this is steam, this is, this is, this is coal, this is burning, this is burning. <laughs> And some guy named Mentat Peter DeVries. Now, first of all, amazing eyebrows. Yes. Top tier eyebrow game. Yep. Also, Mentat. I'm aware that there's a lot more about Mentat stuff in the book. Yep. They're like human computers. All we know is this guy's got amazing eyebrows. They, they yep. don't really go into the Mentat stuff as much. They just hand-wavingly mention it way earlier in the movie, but you're not going to remember that anyway. Yeah. He's rapidly talking just to himself, presumably at this point. It is by will alone that I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of Safu. It says in the subtitle Safo, but he pronounces it Safu, so I'm just going to roll with that. Go for it. 
the, the juicy, the juicy Safu that thoughts acquire speed and lips acquire stains. The stains become a warning. It is by will alone. I set my mind in motion. He's like in this sort of like meditative state of just like repeating this trance, this mantra. And then he takes out his little sippy drink and he goes through his spiel again. And he zips across on this rail over to a green industrial labyrinth. And there's these stairs where it heads down to a bunch of like armed dudes with full black. They have gas masks on standing at the ready. Yes. Okay. There, there you go. Got a lot of like black and green. It feels toxic. Yes. Like Britney Spears's hit song from the early 2000s. And for all these individuals that we will soon meet, I feel that they all would be very fitting to be part of that like song, like music video. Music That's video. That's the which, vibe. I guess we would just. Yeah. You asked me how would I describe our introduction? Britney Spears is toxic. Britney Spears is toxic. There's some juicy sound effects and some bubbly burbles. As we see people with ears like sewn in and eyes sewn in, and there's a doctor injecting stuff into Baron Vladimir Conan's face sores. Yep. It like okay. So, uh, like the Duke, the Duke, the the Baron. Sorry, the Baron. <laughs> The Duke's the morally upstanding good dad. You know, nothing wrong. He's a he's a good he's a good person taking over this other world. However, the Baron, the Baron, he gets every possible negative coding you could give someone. It's like okay, so all these characters, all up the now, seven deadly sins, all the seven deadly sins, all the characters up till now, and like a lot of the scenes were like things that would be taken from like the book in some way and yeah. then reestablished in some way, shape, or form. I believe that I was telling you before, Khalil, that when you try to adapt a work, the amount that you decide to dedicate that will be, like, from, say, for example, the book, if it's something in which, like, you're taking scene by scene, piece by piece, that not only sets up a certain expectation and not only, like, you're setting things up in a mold that may or make or break things, mm -hmm. but you also make the changes all the more, like, visible, like, it, it then just becomes, like, this is the big sort of, like, right. shift that, like, the directors and the writers have actively chosen. Because up until this point, it's been fairly accurate to the book. Yeah, and then, like, uh, gods. Like, it, admittedly, like, he's got harnesses and everything flow around. But this, like, the Baron. The Baron. In the tale of the story of Dune... When you see the Baron, he's someone that is very much so full of himself. He, like, he is the type of person to, like, make a plan, feel that he's so clever that he laughs to himself while he's, like, actively deciding onto the plan. Mm -hmm. He's someone that is, seems very, like, calculated to a point, but more so aloofly calculated that he's willing to speak his mind and go out to the mental chess game if it means that he'll see you react and twitch. It, he's very much a very sort of mostly reserved until it is something that entertains him. This one is just <laughs> Joker that flies. He laughs maniacally. He has these weird sores on his face that must be operated on and just enjoyed like... Like how we, he's supposed to like be like pleasured in the way of voice. And if he just feels like it, he'll float over to you and pull out your heart plug yeah. because those are a thing around here, yes. which he installs heart plugs in people. So he can just like, for some reason, like pull it out just so he can like laugh and lick your face. Yeah. 
Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Living, living the dream. It's it's wild. And his spawn is wild, too. We already went over with Sting. In which Sting spawn. Sting is there to just, like, be. And wear metal G-strings. Wear metal G-strings and just be, like, this menace inside the area. And the Beast, Raban, mm-hmm. is someone that is much more, I'll call just like spiteful and evil for just the sake of it. I put like, in my notes, not sting every time I saw him. Cause I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> Robot the beast. Yeah. Like he would like, like actively, like in order to get some juice, he'd like crush a tiny creature in this small little cube, drink from it. And then just toss aside the little glass cube just because like it, now it's waste. So it'll just like mm-hmm. get rid of it. And I mean, as a vegetarian, it's perfect commentary. I'm, I'm cool. I mean, like, yeah, I'm just as, saying. As far as, like, the, the series of scenes, like, I may be describing it in a way that seems all sorts of jumbled, but let me assure you, listener, this is just basically a highlight reel of just, like, how, like, evil they're trying to get these people to be across. It, it, it's oh, it's so, negative coding after negative coding after... There's nothing positive associated there, with these people. There is, like... There's mustache twirling, and then there's just, like, someone just took, like, a hair curler straight to their mustache. And, like, at a certain point, even as you and I might make fun of that, we have to respect, to a certain degree, just how whole hog it just launches itself into that I, there is no hesitation involved in this is there like cleal is there something that i can connect to at this point mm-hmm. that david lynch can write a subtle villain because so far <laughs> like from what i've experienced from david lynch's work the antagonist the fighting force is far from subtle like it, however I, uh, much <laughs> like he could be involved with the writing of bob yeah I assure you that's not subtle yeah. or anyone inside of the red room. I yeah. assure you that's not subtle. It's just, it's just like there. Yeah. And it's, you're considering you're Lynch served. had been doing so many revisions here. He definitely uh, intended the Baron to be this way. He yeah. had a crack at like five different versions of more than five. I think the framing and all sorts of shots throughout the film are oftentimes what I like to call just very set style. You stand in your place until someone addresses you and it's as if you're like going through a play like performance, but specifically whenever we're like in house Harkonnen. Yeah. It's almost as if like we're going into his own carnival in which like the style changes to the point, like there'll be shots of flowers in the background that someone is actively attending to before he is actively murdered in front of them. (laughs) And you look at it, it's like this, I guess maybe this might mean something. I don't know, man. (laughs) And I feel like that vibe just comes along with a lot of David Lynch pieces. And and with the, with the scene, uh, I feel like there's less happening here that matters and more just, again, that emotion of what these people are like. The main thing that we're getting right now is how bad the Baron and his, like, nephews are. That is that is the emphasis, and it is drilled into us. It's drilled more in. More than anything else that's actually being discussed. Although, we do have things to summarize, Professor. We haven't talked about anything yet, hardly. It's, 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 also, Jack Nance is there. Jack Nance is there. He has a very small role in this film. He has a very he, small role. I'm glad he's there. It's fun to see him. Does he add much to the film? Not really, but it's nice seeing an old friend. I feel very neutral to the position. Ah, that's fair. And then Sting appears. Rad guitar music rolls in. Uh, we get some conversation happening about 
communication between the Baron and Duke Leto and invoking mm. some sort of you know system of peace and blah 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 blah. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> we also um, you know we we meet like I said Sting, which is Fade, and some context for Fade by the way. Sir Patrick Stewart, again Gurney. The actor was at the time completely unfamiliar about who Sting was as a musician, just like you, Professor, does not know this musician. Basically, me and Sir Patrick Stewart are the same person. You both should not have probably been Gurney. Maybe a different professor should be on this podcast, too. (laughs) We're not sure. Maybe I got the wrong one. Uh, When meeting him on set, Patrick Stewart asked if he was a solo artist, to which Sting replied he was in a band called The Police. Stewart, totally unaware, thought Sting played in a police band. I don't know what a police band I, is. Apparently, it's it's hyphenated, so it's police hyphen band, like a band of police officers. You know, like some people form a band, you know, as like, you know, they're students. They can form like a, like a band as a school, you know. You can have a band that maybe like a garage band. They play in garages. Police band, you know, it's a bunch of police officers who get together on their off duty and they just make music together. Basically, I imagine that Sir Patrick Stewart just thought that cop rock was going to happen. Yes, maybe so. I'm the baby merchant, tots for us. I like how when I do music references, it's usually to something very well-known culturally. (laughs) And when you do music references, one person who's listening is going to know what you're talking about. (laughs) Hey, hey, how's it going? How's it going? Hey, you know, you know, we know, we know. Hello, who? Also, apparently in the book, you can confirm if this is true, Fade is 15 in the book. He's like... I forget the exact age, but he is most certainly made an example of a growing nephew to yeah. kind of like being the nega. Yeah, Paul. he he is the foil. He is the op. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Sting is in his thirties during this movie performance. It's, it's, it's a difference. Just rounded up, it turns to thirty. I don't find it actually to be that big of a problem. It's not like Dear Evan Han- uh, Dear Evan Hansen film versions of weird. I don't get the sense of uncanny like uh, Steve Buscemi gif of like how's it going, fellow children. Like I'm not I'm not getting that vibe. He's not portrayed enough around other young people to like make yeah. it weird because everyone in this whole entire planet looks weird. So I'm not thinking about how old he is. And the movie doesn't even try to tell me he's 15. It's just funny that they cast this guy in his 30s to be a 15-year-old character from a book. It'd be better, though, if it was Steve Buscemi who was walking out with the Iron G-string, correct? I mean, I would want Steve Buscemi in an Iron G-string in every movie. Yes. I don't care what the movie is. How do you know that he's not? I haven't seen him in uh, an Iron yeah, exactly. It's under the clothes. It's always under the clothes. The, you'd always. What see if him. he's? What if Steve Buscemi's doing like a nude scene? He's not wearing it. Name one nude scene with Steve. Okay, Buscemi. well, I'm watching currently um, the older, not really that old, but TV show Boardwalk Empire, and there are sex scenes in it involving Steve Buscemi. We haven't seen a lot of the Steve Buscemi body yet, the Buscemi bod, but we've seen like hints of Buscemi bod, like implications of Buscemi bod. So with this Bushy bod. Stay tuned, listener, because we, we may very well find out one I day. I don't want to spoil. <laughs> anyway, 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 anyway. So, so this conversation continues where Peter is talking about the plan with them, and I'm getting, like, major Crash Bandicoot Dr. Embryo vibes from Peter with his eyebrows. Big fan of the visual design of how ridiculous this man looks. Um, I don't know. Is that a hot take that the, the assistant scientist man, Peter, is one of the f- coolest characters in this movie? Um, I like him. None of these characters really stay long enough. Okay, fair enough. So, 
You can feel that. Peter makes it clear to Fade that no one can know about the Emperor giving aid to the Baron because that could cause people to be really upset and it could cause a bunch of people in Lonsrod to be against the Baron and the Empire, which, you know, could cause unrest and be bad for those in the power of the status quo. Yeah. Gotta keep this hush-hush. This is an inside job. Um, also, I mentioned the, the crushing of the creature, but in my notes, I compared it to drinking a Capri Sun. Yep. Just thought I would point that out. It's basically the same thing. The doctor monsters. says to Baron that the Baron is so beautiful. Quote, your skin, love to me. Your diseases, lovingly cared for for all eternity. I just like the quote of your skin, comma, love to me. I like that quote. That is the exact words. I adore it. It's great. Um, the Baron clearly wants Arrakis for himself. He who controls the spice controls the universe. Baron starts flying away, lifting himself up, laughing. Sting's having a good time. He's, he's like, oh man, it's my cool floating uncle. They're all having a great time here. And then they get this black goop that pours down on the Baron. When I first watched this scene, I thought he was melting. Like, I thought the goop was coming from his body. I didn't realize it was raining down on him. So just he's covering all this goop. And then he floats by the dude, sensually unplugs his chest, causing the bleed out. Menacing music is happening. Jack Nance, a little uncomfortable right now. By the way. As he's caressing the dying body dude. Have you noticed that, like, throughout the film, like, everyone is exceedingly hot? I understand that there's the desert planet and everything, but it seems like there's all sorts of shots oh, of just I, people excessively sweating. I thought you meant they were all attractive at first. I was going to say, we went from the barren to excessively hot and attractive. To each their own. Everyone's got their own type. That's not my type. But um, personality-wise, we should all stay away from the barren. But but getting getting to the idea of sexuality, this does segue into something I want to talk about. So there's a film scholar. I don't know about much about their work, but I was reading in that they had some criticism of Dune. Uh, Robin Wood is the name of the critic okay. and the scholar. Called Dune, quote, the most obscenely homophobic film I have ever seen. And specifically referred to this scene in which the Baron sexually assaults and kills a young man by bleeding him to death. Continuing that this scene was so charged and written in such a way that he mm -hmm. said, quote, it is managing to associate with homosexuality in a single scene, physical grossness, moral depravity, violence, and disease. So I just wanted to address like right now that criticism and kind of our thoughts on that. Okay. You know, do we read the Baron's character in general, but also this scene as like one, do we think the Baron is coded gay? And then two, do we think the film or the scene is homophobic? So I guess like the first component is, do we get um, homoerotic or homo or like any sort of gay imagery or vibes with the Baron? Well, I think that there is a flamboyancy that some people could see. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially with the moves that he makes on the person before he pulls out the heart. Very plug. much like Jagger, the moves. Yeah. So I, I, I can see a bit of that. I also think that there were other items written in that didn't really help um, inside the mm -hmm. book itself, but I can't quite recall, so I'm not a reliable sure. source on that. I will say that one area that I do find very notable is that maybe like the, it could be a bit more fat phobic or more so of the in the end yeah, of gluttony. That's a good point. Like because it seems that this person is actively like not only like much more larger but it seems like the areas around them on how he sort of like takes things in greedily especially on how his like young older and younger nephew sort of also take yeah. things in uh probably off of his own teachings it's it, it seems like it's almost using that stature as a part of like showing a villain it is tough because it's trying to make the baron the epitome of grossness and yes. 
unpleasantness. And in doing so, definitely goes with the sight of what is conventionally considered unattractive, which would be this very large, um, sweaty, slimy man yep. who everything he does is centrally charged. You know, if a doctor's working on his wounds, he is making it sound like it's a sexual experience for him. But also when he is murdering people, he is definitely enjoying it. And there's a sort of sense in which he does not care what he violates or who he violates. I think whether intentional or unintentional, I do get a bit of that homophobic uh, coding in the sense of he seems very erotically charged when he goes after the man and when he kills the man. And it, I, I, I honestly do kind of feel like it is giving the sort of sense of, ooh, what could be even grosser than this man killing this other man? What if it was sexual? And in doing so, yeah, it, it kind of does come across a bit homophobic to me. Again, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to go out of my way to, to cancel the movie or the book, but I, I do feel like, and, and again, we'll talk about 2021 doing more, but I do feel like if you were to do the exact way that the Baron was behaving in this scene in particular mm -hmm. now, yeah, I do think people would generally raise an eyebrow at that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a different time, but that doesn't necessarily make that portrayal any better. There's other ways to make something seem gross or uncomfortable mm -hmm. than this kind of coding. Yep. I will, I'm not going to, I mean, for all we know, Lynch and the others involved did not read it that way, but I think intentional. Otherwise part of the grossness of this character is charged with a sexuality that is often male to male. Yes. And thankfully we can move away from all of this human depravity and total darkness that the Harkonnens represent by, moving to a much more understandable and mutually agreed upon good thing, which is the pug. Why is there a pug? So Why? Duke Leto, he's cradling a pug. Yes. He has a pug. Why is there a pug? Because pugs look weird. Pugs. Pugs. So the best two explanations I can give for the pug. One, pugs look weird. In terms of domesticated animals you can put in a scene that look kind of alien and freaky. Pugs are pretty high up there. The second reason I come up with is that pugs are, you know, bred specifically uh, throughout generations to be for the royalty, to be the sort of strange animal that looks a very specific way because that's how the royals wanted it. No matter the fact that it clearly is not living its best life. <laughs> that is my best attempt to rationalize this thing. It does not make sense why it's here. It, it does not fit. It does not fit at all. It's it's just a pug. I feel like there was like a situation where like David Lynch just really wanted a pug on set and then a crew member ended up bringing a Dalmatian and then he got angry at him and yelled at him until someone actually It was got Plaster pug. of Paris. It's a Plaster of Pug. Exactly. Uh, we fade out to the dad Duke naked and his wife with Jessica mom. Then fade out to cool ship, and wow, now they're on board and flying wee family trip of mom, dad, son, pug. Excuse me, could you translate into the, like, English? That's my notes. That's how I write them. So, the family flew with off. With the pug. With the pug. It's a full family. Pugs are family, too. Yeah, but still, it's like, I, I'm not, I don't say group, including what if you. We would have, what if we would have found out that afterward that Paul was actually not the chosen one, not the Messiah? It's the pug. It's just the pug? Yeah, they got the wrong one. We all know that this is the sequel to Airbud we all wanted. The tiger, the, the, the tiger. The pug's eyes glow a bright blue, and with the strength of a tiger, he rips out the emperor's throat. Yep. And the pug is declared the new emperor. 
and such is good. That I mean, it'd be an ending. It'd be an ending. Uh, there's there's some small ships entering a larger ship's rectangular orifice, and we find out they're going to fold space. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and the, like the, one the of those folding space, you know, like instantaneous travel. It's and just one that's the, so cool. One of the fleshy spice people, gilding spice guilds, goes up and floats up and spews a beam from the vaginal mouth, and then you know space gets folded. Yep, as it does. As it does. That's that section of the movie. Yay! I like I like the space folding. It was it's, cool. It, it, it's a good way to introduce it to just yeah. generally the world and just like what strange miracles spice can be. But on the same token, it's spice. Yeah. So we've arrived on Arrakis, speaking of spice, and this is where the rest of the movie will take place, pretty much exclusively. Uh, we are introduced to the Fremen more officially. We have another priest lady with blue eyes saying someone's coming to bring the holy war that will cleanse the universe. Which is, you know, again, not a worrying thing to say. Never. Never like, a worrying thing to say. Whenever someone just says omens, you say, ha ha, good joke. Look, if they die in the war, that just means that's what the Lord wanted here, right? So just bring on the bloodshed. No comment. No comment. Princess Irulan narrates, telling us that House Atreides took control of Arrakis 63 standard days into the year 10,191, and they just you know, they got some max security just in case. Mm. Just in case something hypothetically goes horribly wrong. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We get more Duncan content. Again, I'm still like, who? And uh, yep. Duncan speaks of Duke Leto, and says the Fremen may be allies. You know, they can, they can seek them out. They can get their help. And it's possible they exist in vast numbers, way more than anyone had anticipated. Mm -hmm. And they, in fact, control Arrakis. They may be giving the impression that, like, the Harkonnens or the Atreides are in charge, but, like, really, when you get down to it, they are outnumbered significantly by all of the secret Fremen underneath the ground. And we get a nice cut from here to the military personnel being reminded that they need to do their best to preserve their water and the importance of the water. And that leads us into the still suits. The necessary thing to live. Yep, because it keeps every single bit of water still against you. Like, still in you. Uh, fun fact. Sir Patrick Stewart. <laughs> he keeps getting all these fun facts. Sir Patrick Stewart. He said the still suit. The first time. Said the still suit was the most uncomfortable costume he has ever worn. Uh, Max von Sydow said the same, but also said he put up with it because he loved the way his body looked in them. Oh, my. Yes. I, too, enjoy my body covered in strange black tendrils. I mean, to be fair, we're not going to kink shame. Dr. Kynes, who uh, has the big blue eyes, judge of the change, imperial ecologist, uh, inspects Paul and is like, wait a second... You, you've worn a still suit before. Is you it, you nope, wore it a certain nope, certain style nope, here. Sir, no, no, sir, I, I didn't. I, I just I just put it on. I, I, I just put on. It's a suit. I just put on a suit. Please leave me alone. Now, you know all the worm hype we've been getting? That hashtag worm hype up in the chat? The worm train? The choo -choo. worm train. Choo-choo. Paul is is curious. He's, he's asking Cooper-like questions about the worms and the spice, and Dr. Kynes is, like, eyeing him, you know, and wondering what's going on. And Paul's, like, wondering, hmm, this Dr. Kynes person, are you a Fremen? Who are you working for? You know more than you're letting on. That's my Dale Cooper, Kyle McLaughlin, Paul voice right there. And uh, this is where we find out, by the way, the other characters don't know, but Dr. Ua is actually in cahoots with the Harkonnens, hiding in uh, a body, a message. 
and then he's going to x-ray the body, get that message, and find out what's going on over here. Now we get some worm sign. Mm-hmm. Get some worm sign. David Lynch is a cameo. And then I have in my notes, in bold text, in the Google Ooh. font, Black Ops 1. <laughs> Big worm come. Now, C-O-M-E. Don't stop. Like, no. like, he appears. No. Like, you you, you knew what the wording yeah, was. Yeah, I know. I, C-O-M-E, it appears. Ah, oh, God, it's Khalil. <laughs> then now, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever a podcast is shown, just know I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please, please at least keep me around. Please, just please let's get some hype for the hashtag warm train in the chat. Oh, well, at least it wasn't the thing that I thought you were going to shout. Okay. <laughs> you never know. Loose cannon over here. Worms. I'm sorry. When, I'm, when, I, when I see the giant worms in the sand, anything can happen. It is a, it's a whole, whole spin the roulette. We'll spin the wheel of fortune. Oh, look, it's a vacation. We're going to the assassination attempt. So, Lady Khalil. Jessica, mm. talking with Dr. Yue. Why you hate the Harkonnens so much? Why, why, why are you so angry at these horrifying, brutal space people that have every negative trait we could possibly figure out? And some that are possibly coded in bad ways. Have you, have you actively seen them in there, like, anywhere? And, like, and Yue makes, a, like, a vague comment about his wife. Something going on with her. And uh, her inner voice, she's like, he's holding something back. Like, but he's got on his forehead that mark of imperial condition, so don't worry, we can trust him. He, he's verified. He's, he's got that, that uh, YouTube verification, like, channel symbol in the comment. We I know he's the real thing. I don't care. Like, like it's like one glance, and you see this man licking another guy's face while pulling out his heart. I'm sorry, but not trustworthy material, believe it or not. We also, speaking of not worth trustworthy material, we see the fruits of some of his labor here where Paul is nearly assassinated. There was a hunter seeker floating around the room, needle looking thing. And it basically, if he moves, it sees him, so he can't move. Someone in the palace is operating it. I like this scene. Really good tension. You like the scene? The hunter seeker needle scene. It's uh, it's hard because the thing is that I'm imagining like this thing, this travel, like this travel scroll or whatever you call this weird tube that just sort of goes through, and it's meant to be an assassin of some sort. It's meant to be something mm-hmm. threatening in which can come in and strike you while you're down. But just imagine like something that's meant to assassinate going. I, I think it's, it's used to add the, the sort of tension and mood for the viewer. Um, whether it succeeds or not, it's individual. You know, I, I didn't mind it. I did. I it was ear grating. I could tell. Well, I mean, at least it wasn't throat grating, as it could have been if he wasn't careful. <laughs> um, and then the door opens, and suddenly the thing detects movement and goes straight out for this person named Shoutout Mapes. <laughs> Shout out Mapes, who is uh, played by Linda Hunt in a, in a rather interesting like, little small role. And uh, she, she says some more, some more things, and there's a traitor among us. A traitor among us. Can we get some mogus in the chat? Um, this is going to age like fine milk. Oh, guys, delicious. It already has aged. We have already voted no you one plays. Galeel. No one plays among us anymore. We've already voted you I had him Galeel. with the worms, and I've lost him. You've lost him. You lost him. I'm sorry. Don't worry. Don't worry. One day we'll get our hashtag worm train going again, boys. And girls. Uh, well, Khalil, 
be able to get past the worm train to Wormageddon? Will the professor yell at a pug at the sheer fact they exist? When will these podcasters get to the part of Dune 2021 that was foretold by, well, themselves? I guess we'll have to find out next time when we return to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Lawcast. <laughs>